Welcome to the fifth episode of A Decade of Private Debt. As PEI Group's magazine Private Debt Investor celebrates its 10-year anniversary, join us on a journey to uncover the insights, stories, and pivotal moments that have shaped the private debt landscape over the past decade. In this six-part mini-series to kick off the new Private Debt Investor podcast, we're bringing you an exclusive dive into the minds of industry leaders and key players, exploring the challenges, triumphs, and the evolving dynamics that have defined the world of private debt. Don't forget to also download Private Debt Investor's Decade Issue for more insight on how the industry has evolved over the last 10 years, which you can find at privatedebtinvestor.com or at the link in the description. In this episode, PDI Senior Editor Andy Thompson sits down with Sabrina Fox, CEO of the European Leverage Finance Association. Fox reflects on her personal experiences of the past decade, as well as the highs and lows of the industry. Sabrina, delighted you could join us today. So to start things off, I think one of the things that um, has emerged from discussions I've had so far for this series is that it turned out I didn't know much about how people got where they are. So <laughs> we've had lots of discussions, but I'm not sure I really know exactly how to join the dots in terms of how you ended up where you are now. So what you've become is an authority on the, on the subject, no question about that. And somebody who, if I needed some insights into what's going on in terms of, you know, borrower investor or borrower lender negotiations in the leveraged loan market, or indeed the, the private debt market, you're a person that I would come to definitely for your opinions. But maybe you could, you know, talk us through how your early career led to you having these amazing insights and how you ended up where you are. Sure. And I want to say I am delighted to be here and I always enjoy those chats. So thank you so much for having me. It's funny. I have been doing a lot of joining the dots myself. It's easier when you look back, uh, sort of get to a point where you think, gosh, this is great. I really love what I'm doing. How did I end up here? <laughs> um, I, I actually wanted to be a screenwriter when right. I graduated from university. I went wow. to, to uni in L.A. and uh, grew up there and thought that was my calling. Um, but I was persuaded by very sensible parents to go to law school. Oh, where shame. I, <laughs> not sensible enough. Yeah. I was told I could do anything I wanted after I got my law degree. Um, but of course, the career counselors had a different idea and uh, so did my student loan debt. Um, anyway, <laughs> I ended up in a law firm and I started out doing litigation because I thought I have a, I have a very keen sense of justice and I thought, courtroom is where justice happens so I'm gonna do that but it was just motion practice it was just try to make sure that the plaintiff doesn't have enough money to continue and you kind of think oh well this doesn't seem very fair mm -hmm. so then I moved to corporate um, and my very first assignment was comparing high-yield covenants so right out of the gates into the land of covenants where I have ever since been wandering in bliss um, and uh, and that was fair I felt it was very there's four corners of a contract. The parties agree. They know what's in it. And they sort of know what they're getting themselves into. And if you don't comply or perform under the contract, then, you know, there are remedies for that. So honestly, from that point, I wished I had contracts for every single relationship in my life. Like, I want a contract <laughs> with my partner. I want a contract with my son. I want, a con I want contracts. I can point to this is the provision. This is why. It's just very clear and straightforward. So I was very drawn to that. And when I moved to London, I uh, was doing high yield uh, deals at Paul Weiss, and I started to feel kind of entrepreneurial bug, which came very much from my childhood. My parents owned a video store when I was growing up. 
and uh, and I was, you know, all in with covenants and started thinking how much time could be saved if covenants could be compared easily with software. Uh, and I shared this idea with Stephen Mostyn Williams, who's the founder of Dead Explained, and he said, "Well, why don't you come and let's let's build that?" So I went from law firm life to startup life, and I kind of have never gone back. I had a brief time at DLA Piper, um, worked with the great Tony Lopez, which was phenomenal between Dead Explained and Covenant Review. When I got to Covenant Review, it was really that let's dig deep into the docs, let's make sure lenders understand, let's you know write things in a way that's clear, concise, and simple. I had so many conversations with the buy side during that time, and we did achieve some real changes, and that got that, you know, that sense of justice in me really, really on fire. Uh, and then when the opportunity came up to start the European Leverage Finance Association, which is obviously all about transparency, disclosure, fairness, efficiency, resilience, the strength of the market, it allowed me to take what I'd built in sort of covenants and expand it into the so many myriad other ways that the market can be made stronger, more resilient, etc. Yeah. So that's the path. Okay, brilliant. Uh, wonderfully described as well. Um, <laughs> and I totally empathize on that about having contracts in all aspects of your life. I wish I had one with my son because there is, there is no hint of a contract there. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure I'm not. Um, yeah, just coming. So in, in a sense, you kind of fell into it. It's not like you had already done your research into the whole area of covenants. And then lo and behold, along came a case that you worked on. It was just kind of put in front of you. Exactly. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I got even more deeply into it. I was working with um, a great mentor of mine, Mark Bergman and Paul Weiss. And when the credit crisis happened, there were obviously no deals. So he came in and said, look, I know you really enjoy covenants. So why don't you become our covenant expert? I want you to spend all of your time reading docs. And that was what I did. And and that was really where where the idea for Market Maker was born, the, the Dead Explain and now Reorg product was that sitting there and thinking, there must be a better way. <laughs> there must be a better way, your mantra. Um, so uh, yeah, so you've brought us right up to European Leveraged Finance Association. And you know, you might want to go on to talk about Fox legal training as well. One word you've mentioned a number of times already is justice. And that's, that's something that just comes through in every conversation with you. This, this isn't just for you a sort of academic exercise. It's something where you feel that people on both sides of that contract should be fairly represented. So, yeah, perhaps you could talk us a little bit through your role at, at Alpha and how that's developed and what really has motivated you during your time there. Absolutely. Um, and I will say you mentioned Fox Legal Training just to make it absolutely clear for the audience. Alpha and FLT are completely separate and independent businesses. Yeah. So that that disclaimer out of the yep. way. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when when Alpha was first created, it was sort of a blank slate for lenders. I came in with what I knew about fairness, and that obviously was, as you say, you know, contracts and a four corners of an agreement, uh, and felt maybe there was something more that could be done there, apart from the kind of deal by deal wins that had been achieved over, you know, the prior three years or so. Obviously, it was built for lenders. It's the buy. It's a buy side trade body. So, the, so my priority was to build a strong platform so they could bring their issues, you know, the, their ideas, maximize it and use it in the way that felt the most true for them. And that was 
really what happened. So for me, the job was create the infrastructure. I mean, really from the ground up, but it means like incorporate the nonprofit you know, entity, like create a website, you know, just go out and find people to believe in it. And we had 10 founding members who I'm deeply grateful for because without them, you know, there is no alpha, right? And then once that idea started to spread, this idea of a, a buy side voice, a platform for the buy side, it, the people just came. And that was the feeling that I had going into it. I really felt from all the conversations I've been having with the buy side that there was this growing sense of we have things to say. We want to have a voice. Uh, and that was what the organization was all about. So it, you know, also creating kind of the organizational structure. So everything is done through committees. We have a board. You know, all the committees have co-chairs. The co-chairs and the board liaise with each other. The committees are both asset class focused and alpha focuses on, you know, high yield bonds, leveraged loans, private debt and CLOs. There's a committee for each one of those asset classes. There's a CLO investor committee as well. And then we have the ESG diversity and inclusion and engagement, which is where all the regulatory efforts sit. And that w- that's sort of where the organization is now. Obviously, it is fully growing and expanding all the time. So we just established an AI committee and we're in the process of getting co-chairs for that because we know, like ESG, AI has the potential to completely transform the market in ways that we cannot anticipate, but we want to be prepared for. So when we started the ESG committee in 2019, it was very much the same. We had members come to us and say, this is a huge thing, that it, it is coming. It's sort of like this slow moving, you know, beast and we need to be ready and, and you know, there are risks, there are opportunities. Let's let's create something that will help us to tackle those. Uh, and the AI committee will be very much similar. So, so that's sort of what it was like. But there was, you know, building the mission alongside building the practical aspects of the organization. All of that was happening at the same time. So, you know, initially I was doing everything. And then I brought in a contractor to do IT because I don't know how to do that and it just wasn't worth upskilling at this stage in my life you know and then and then I got into the wonderful position of being able to take bits of my job that I didn't really like that much sort of anything to do with numbers in excel and give it to somebody who loves that stuff you know who's like uh, just passionate about you know operations and organization and uh, you know, financial statements and things like that. And similarly with the regulatory side, we just hired a director of engagement and regulatory affairs. And that was bringing in someone who's an expert in that. Like I've never done a regulatory proposal in my life until I got to Alpha. You know, I wanted to bring in someone to work on behalf of our members who was that person who had been doing that for their career because that's what lights them up. And that's been what's, you know, what's most rewarding about having created the organization is that I get to bring in people who do jobs because it lights them up because they love it. And similarly with investors, they come in because they have goals, they have causes, they have, you know, ideas, and and they get to see those to fruition through the infrastructure of the organization that's been built. Yeah, I'm a bit worried what I might spark off with this question because, you know, it's clear that you, (laughs) I think it's clear to everyone by now how passionate you are about the subject. And I think, you know, some of the conversations we've had have been at a point in time where, you know, people were talking a lot about the imbalance in the sort of borrower-investor or borrower-lender relationship and there was a time, and I'm not saying that these things have gone away at all, but certainly maybe two or three years ago, it seemed to really peak where people were pointing to particular aspects of contracts in deals at that time that were happening and which 
many people perceived to be sort of frankly laughable. And, and, and actually, sometimes you looked at them and laughed out loud. <laughs> I definitely worried, had those Worried, comments. as I say, about what I'm sparking <laughs> off here. But maybe you could sort of, uh, you know, talk about one or two examples of this and whether... You know, you feel that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm asking you to look back over the last 10 years, because of course that co coincides with the decade, yeah. the decade theme. But I'm thinking maybe some of the worst examples were around that sort of two, maybe two, three, maybe four years ago. It's That seems about the time to me when it was peak madness right, almost. Right, right. I mean, look, I could give you, you know, the top 10 egregious terms, and there are a lot of people who do that sort of work very well. So I will leave that to them. But I'll give you two examples of situations where there were terms inserted, and it was in a way that lenders could not possibly see, or procedurally, a deal was constructed so that it would be very difficult for lenders to form a group, you know, things that you just think, okay, yes, that actually is just not fair. It's not possible for any lender, no matter how astute or, uh, you know, prepared to, to kind of see that. So the first example I'll give you is in a deal I was reviewing when I was at Covenant Review, and we used to blackline to kind of quickly spot things that had been, you know, picked up, because obviously a lot of the market is done based on precedent. And in the blackline, I picked up that there were two words deleted, and the two words were default or, so that the provision which used to read that there must be no default or event of default in order for a particular basket to be used to make dividends and other restricted payments, it now just says no event of default. So those two words, default or, opened up the ability for the borrower to pay dividends even during a time when it was in default, mm -hmm. which is huge, mm -hmm. you know, and to me as a lender, I would think that's a risk that I want highlighted. There's a risk factor section in the offering memorandum. What are we using it for? You know, this seems like something you'd want to have highlighted, but it was just two little words just gone. Yeah. And we wrote uh, something called a market alert about that to make sure that investors were aware. And it actually was in that deal. The two words were put back in. And then again, in the next deal, the next deal. Eventually, over time, there are other things that are more important for a particular deal. And it goes through a few times and then it becomes precedent. That's just been how that's why we have so many terms and deals that are so flexible is that it becomes a bit of whack-a-mole. You sort of get one and then you're focused here and then something else crops up over there and it just becomes very difficult. So the you know covenant analysis services are doing great work in ensuring that lenders are aware of, of things like that. And it is also a big reason why I started Fox Legal Training to create an education platform that would basically educate lenders to think like lawyers so that they would know where to look for risks like that and mm -hmm. wouldn't be so much caught unawares. Yeah. So the other example I'll give you is more procedural in nature. Um, a, a consent solicitation was brought in. This, again, is in the high-yield bond market. Um, and the borrower wants to waive some provisions in a change of control situation, change of control those are very expensive for the borrower and its owners. Lucrative, especially if bonds are trading below 101 for lenders. And, uh, you know, typically it would be a consent payment of X amount in order to waive that change of control. But this one came with a consent fee that was much lower than market. And it, they were making all sorts of other changes. And it was just, there was a lot going on, you know. So again, covenant review, I'm reading this and doing a report. And I'm just thinking, we have five days. I mean, there are five 
day. So like Monday is a lost cause, right? Because you have just reading everything and kind of getting sat at your desk. So maybe you get to looking at it Tuesday and then you go to maybe credit committee if you're lucky on Wednesday. And then you have to instruct on Thursday in order to make a consent deadline by Friday. Like there's a lot that has to happen. But it's not like that's a surprise to the borrower. Like there's a reason they pick five days. So situations like that, you think, well, you're just not giving lenders enough time. Uh, Anyway, in the end, we, we ended up negotiating a very good, I mean, not covenant review, obviously, but lenders came together and did eventually negotiate a better fee um, for all of the changes that were being made. But only because we acted at that point as kind of a fulcrum to be like, come into us and we'll kind of tell you what's going on. Uh, and we're actually looking to work with one of our partners to provide a similar kind of service to our members if some kind of corporate action comes through and lenders need to organize quickly. Um, I haven't got to the point where I can announce it officially, but when when we get there, I will definitely let you know. Okay, please do. So, uh, yeah, absolutely fascinating examples. Um, I suppose, you know, and you mentioned that private debt is now obviously a focus of your activities, but uh, that's something that sort of evolved. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how that happened and also your sense of, you know, the kind of situations that you've described, how that relates to the private debt market, because I'm sure there are many in the private debt market who would say that that doesn't really apply to us. You know, we're, we're as good as gold. Uh, that applies to the sort of leveraged loan, broadly syndicated market. My sense is that, you know, some of that came into the private debt market, not necessarily to the same extent. So through Alpha, I became more familiar with the private debt market because as we grew the organization, there were folks investing in private debt who wanted to become a part of the organization. So we created the private debt committee. Now, I do think that the private debt market in terms of covenants and process, for the most part, in general, say, bar the last three, four or five years, has a great discipline, you know, very organized, um, very strong protections, lots of transparency. Now, as the private debt market and the broadly syndicated loan market have begun to cross-pollinate with borrowers and private equity sponsors and lenders and documentation, there has been a relaxation of documentation. Some documents are more flexible. The broadly syndicated loan market is almost completely covlight now. And, and that's yep. no surprise to mm-hmm. anyone. The private debt market is, you know, they still have covenants. How many they have and what quality they are is just you know, depends from deal to deal. But I do think that some of the documentation issues along the lines of what I've mentioned, you know, the private debt market is still vulnerable to that kind of, I would say, evolution, right? Documentary flexibility becoming more prevalent. It's definitely vulnerable to that. So I would recommend the private debt lenders hold the ground. And, you know, especially now there there is more, I would say, bargaining power on the lender side than than there has been in the past. Now, procedurally, it is obviously a completely different offering process. But if you think about something like, you know, an auction process for an asset, I mean, the, the really good assets are in more demand now than ever, you know, an asset that can withstand the the you know volatility, inflation, interest rates, and you know the ones that are still standing, like those are the gold that you want to go for, right? So there is a lot of competition, and when you get competition, that is when documentation starts to suffer, because you've got different people saying, "Well, I'll give you this flexibility, but I'll give you this flexibility, I'll give you this flexibility," and then you know top tier sponsors thinking, "Well, obviously, I'm going to take the best deal for my client." So. 
where that competition starts to come in is again, I would provide, I would sort of suggest caution to private debt managers to just realize that if everyone holds the ground, then no ground can be ceded. But mm -hmm. as soon as one manager loosens the, you know, the principles and and the sort of focus on strong provisions and protections and for themselves in the document that is the one that's just it only needs one crack right <laughs> to kind of like break the whole thing loose don't be that person yes <laughs> if you can avoid it <laughs> okay um so uh you know i was talking to somebody yesterday about the sort of regulatory scrutiny on on private debt at the moment and I asked them what the biggest challenge was for the private debt asset class in terms of its conversation with regulators, and he said data. And then I think he said data again about ten times. Yeah. <laughs> um, just so uh, clearly, there's, there's there's an issue there, and I know that a lot of what you focus on is around provision of data and transparency, visibility. So I'm going to ask you about what the future holds and whether, in your view, there are signs of things improving for the better. You know, what what is it that you take encouragement from in terms of what you've observed maybe just over the last year or two? Do you see signs of things becoming better? And, and what's your forward prognosis for the next period? So I would say that the data regulatory and and documentation as like the three buckets to, to consider. So data is getting better. I mean, now that's when we're thinking of like ESG and sustainability, you know, borrowers in the private debt market are getting better at sourcing the data, reporting the data, uh, engaging on the data for sure. And the ESG fact sheets that we've been publishing since 2020 are a big part of that just broad indoctrination, if you will, <laughs> and getting everybody on the same page, quite literally, on ESG. And in terms of regulatory engagement, I feel, you know, there's definitely interest by regulators in the private debt market. There is this idea of democratization of private debt, of it becoming more available to retail investors. That is only going to heighten scrutiny, you know, to the extent that any regulator looks at the market and thinks there is a large chunk of institutional or retail you know, cash in this market, and it's it it doesn't have a line in to know what vulnerabilities might be created by that. That's where you're going to start to see more interest. Now, recently, IOSCO did a consultation, which we are we are responding into. It's all about transparency. It's it's focused on the broadly syndicated loan market, and it does also touch on the CLO market. But they publish these best practices. So they publish these these best practices in order to create more transparency, to support more transparency. Now, they did that after months of engagement with market participants, which to me gives me hope for the regulatory processes of the future, that that level of engagement will continue. And we are here, you know, other organizations like AMA and the ACA are here to educate, to ensure the regulator knows about the market, how it functions, how it operates, what, you know, what best practice or regulation will foster growth and resilience and strength from transparency and not just another box to tick. Nobody needs more boxes to tick. In terms of covenants, we have observed green shoots of greater <laughs> investor protection. Uh, at the Alpha annual conference recently, there was a panel that discussed this slow evolution back toward protective provisions, which can only happen as deals are refinanced. Now, typically when a deal is refinanced, the terms 
don't really get tighter. Uh, but sometimes they do. And, and, you know, as some borrowers may struggle to refinance because not everybody is sailing through the current economic situation, they will have to concede some terms. And that brings me back now to Fox Legal Training, which is the purpose of creating an educational tool that can work alongside credit analysts as they're reviewing these deals and gives them, you know, covenant by covenant guidance on how to analyze, taking everything in the context of the credit that you're looking at, because there is no one size fits all, and really coming up with a tailored approach to the protections in that particular deal that is designed to guide the market toward a future where terms make sense because that's I think where we've got to that is kind of everybody's a little bit oh you know what what is going on it's it's because we've had precedent-based cookie cutter covenants getting more in favor of borrowers for a decade and I actually wrote an article uh, for the Journal of International Banking and Finance on this topic about which specific terms had got looser over time and it's not a pretty picture for lenders but if you take the opposite side of that coin and you tighten those pieces up again, then you do get back to the point where things make sense. You know, back in the baby lawyer days when I was looking at that first high yield deal and things worked in a particular way for a particular reason, I my sincere hope is that we will get back there. But as I mentioned, it is evolution and this is not ESG evolution slash revolution. This is slow, incremental change over time that it was expressed at the annual conference folks believe will slowly move terms back to being protective of investors rather than flexibility for borrowers. Okay. No revolution, but we'll, we'll cling on to those green shoots. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so aside from sort of being the one that breaks rank, is there any other advice that you might have for a private debt manager at this point in time? What would be that one piece of advice? Take your time. I, I know that is a that is a big ask with some deal processes. But when you're thinking about the borrower and you're thinking about the docs, it really does take a moment to sit and consider. And, you know, having educated yourself on which terms really matter in the context of the borrower that you're looking at, just take a time to ensure that you have the protections in that documentation that you need, that you need for that borrower, for that private equity sponsor, if there is one involved. That is the, the time before you sign on the dotted line. That is the time you have to do that. After you've signed, you know, I mean, bar amendments, which at that point you just don't have the same negotiating power, you've lost the opportunity. So take the time in this current climate and environment to really get your head around the docs, understand the protections that you need and make sure that you have them before you sign. Okay. Very good advice. (laughs) Thanks very much. That's been amazing, Sabrina. Thanks so much. My pleasure. That again was Alpha's CEO, Sabrina Fox, and PDI's senior editor, Andy Thompson. Make sure to click the link in the description and head to privatedebtinvestor.com to check out PDI's decade issue for more insight on how the industry has evolved over the last 10 years. And stay tuned for the final episode of the mini-series, where we'll hear from Akila Growal of Apollo. This episode was produced by me, Mina Tumai, and edited by Eric Fish. Thanks for listening. <laughs>